1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, that would be me, be subject to the elders, that would be you. (laughs) Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Praise God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is the extreme and unusual kindness from God that is extended to those who are undeserving. Grace is divine influence and intervention. That's a good thing to write down. Grace is divine influence and intervention. Grace is when God gets involved in your situation for your benefit. It is his help. It is God actively working to further his purposes for your life. Grace is God's ability to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Someone say amen. Amen. Now we are saved by grace, not by our own efforts to be good or by our charitable deeds. But that is only the beginning of God's grace in our life, certainly not the end. For example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it tells us that Stephen, who was the first martyr, you know, in the church, Stephen was full of grace. Hmm. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, speaking of those apostles who gave witness to the resurrection of Christ, it says, great grace was upon them all. So that means you can have more of God's grace working in your life. Or you can have less. It's measurable. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, it talks about grace being multiplied to you. So that means no matter where you are in your Christian walk, there's more grace available to you. Don't ever think, well, I'm saved and I have God's grace and full stop, that's, that's the end of the story. No, that's not the end of the story. No one here has experienced all of God's grace. Imagine a giant ocean and you and I are maybe up to our ankles in water. No, no, there's a lot more available to you and me. Amen? Thank you for your enthusiasm. Why does this matter? Grace will bring you into sympathetic cooperation with men of means. Grace will bring you into sympathetic cooperation with men of means. People who are well-resourced will want to help you. In fact, a moment of favor is better than a lifetime of labor. Grace can do more for you in a few minutes than you could do for yourself in several years. Hallelujah. Grace is an accelerator. Like Joseph, you can go from the jailhouse to the White House in a single day because of God's grace. Grace will highlight you. It will cause you to be noticed while others are ignored. Like Esther, 
you can move from obscurity to a place of prominence, not just for your own comfort, but to further the work of God. As Mordecai said to Esther in Esther 4.14, and who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, God placed you in that position of influence and resource to do his will, to advance his kingdom. Amen. Grace is divine influence. God can speak to people on your behalf. He can sway them. He can persuade them. And by the way, he'll do a lot better job of it than you would. Proverbs 16 verse 7 says this, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, I've got enemies left and right. I mean, I, my whole family is having a feud. Well, you obviously need more grace. Amen. Grace is a reconciler. It's a restorer. It can mend severed relationships. In fact, it was the grace of God that first drew you to Christ. You have been reconciled by the grace of God. And that same grace can reconcile husbands and wives. It can reconcile children and parents. It can reconcile families. Hallelujah. It is the grace of God that strengthens us. The Lord told Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. So in other words, you might be saying, oh, I'm just going through such a hard time. I, you know, I, oh, everybody's against me. And God's answer to you very well could be, my grace is sufficient for you. The word sufficient means enough. Enough. So that means there is no hardship in life that you encounter that the grace of God cannot sustain you through it. Grace does not always change the circumstance. Many times grace changes us. We are fortified within. We are strengthened. We have a resiliency. We can bounce back from adversity. Hallelujah. We may get knocked down seven times, but seven times we rise up again. It's by the grace of God. Hallelujah. How could I live in Nagaland for more than 28 years? It's the grace of God. I'm telling you, I testify, it is the grace of God. Hallelujah. And in this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, God's grace is referred to as power. Power. Our inability accentuates God's ability. His strength is more clearly seen in our weakness. And in that way, everyone will know that our success is from the Lord and not because of us, because of who we are. Hallelujah, and he'll get the glory. You know, we sang earlier this morning, it's a wonderful song, I know who I am, but I know who I am, and also know why I am. It's because of the grace of God. <laughs> In myself, I'm not holy. In myself, I'm not right. In myself, I'm not righteous. I'm not strong. It's the grace of God. Can somebody say amen? 
So that means grace makes us grateful. Grace makes us grateful because we know this is the work of God. And whatever God has called you to do, he will give you grace to do it. Whatever the plan of God is for your life, and God does have a plan for every member of the body of Christ, he will give you grace to do it. So there is grace for your race. One way you can discover the plan of God is by examining and realizing where your grace is. It's interesting, Paul said that Peter and John met him in Jerusalem, and in the book of Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, it says they perceived the grace that was upon his life. They, they met him, and they recognized this is the hand of God upon this man's life, upon his ministry. That means when there's grace upon your work, upon your ministry, even other people can see it. People who know God will definitely recognize it. Hallelujah. Now, after I graduated from Bible school, I worked for uh, our family company, which is in the car business. But then I had an opportunity to travel to the country of Haiti, which is an island in the Caribbean. It's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And I was part of a large evangelism team. And um, there was an older man who was an evangelist who preached, and we all did different works. And this man, this, this brother, was kind enough to allow me to preach a little bit uh, in some of those large crusade meetings, you know. And God, I, I would say God blessed it, and, and God, God, God helped me, you know. Later on, back in America, I, me and my wife had... Um, uh, dinner with the son of this evangelist who was also on the team with us and we were just uh, talking and praying together and, and this brother said to me I, I don't believe that it's God's plan for you just to sell cars because nobody can preach like that unless there's a call upon his life unless there's grace to do it hallelujah you know sometimes people go to Bible school and they think well I'm going to become a preacher I'm going, to, I'm going to learn to be a preacher. Well, in one sense, you can develop and you can grow in knowledge, but roosters don't go to rooster school. When the sun comes up, they go cock-a-doodle-doo. And if you've got the preach in you, I'm telling you, you don't need a whole lot of pushing, a whole lot of cajoling. You'll just start preaching. Hallelujah. Short time after I met with that brother, uh, I left my job and went into full-time ministry. Never looked back. So Paul also said, I'm not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of, uh, of Christ. But then he added in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's what every one of us need to say. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That means if there's any fruit from our work, if there's anything good that happens around here, it's because of the grace of God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So that means, you know, if any act of kindness has been shown to you, you need to give God glory. When we praise the Lord, we are not being magnanimous. We're not being generous. We're being honest. It really is because of the goodness of God. Hallelujah. But grace is more than a blessing. Grace is God working in you so that you may be 
a blessing. And as you walk with the Lord, your prayer becomes less and less, bless me, bless me, but help me, make me a blessing to others. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. See, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you find out as you see others get saved, it's like you get saved again. When others are baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's like you got a, you got a refilling with them. Hallelujah. You not only have a need to receive, you have a greater need to give. Because God didn't call all of you to be merely consumers of ministry, but contributors to the ministry. If you just sit on a bench and don't do anything, you're going to get spiritual constipation. And you're going to become very grumpy and uncomfortable. But if you get out and do something, even a small thing, and not just you know in the confines of the church, but anything for the Lord, I'm telling you there's a refreshing and there's a blessing. Amen. Amen. Grace makes you a blessing. In 1989, I traveled to Eastern Europe, and I was in the country of Hungary, and there I attended a Billy Graham crusade. The stadium in Budapest, Hungary, was packed with some 70,000 people who were tired of the repression of communism. And when Billy Graham walked out to the platform... I mean, it just struck me. You could just tell this is a great man of God. No one, no one had to inform you. You just knew it. There was just something about him. And he preached a sermon, a very simple message. And to be honest with you, it wasn't the greatest sermon I've ever heard. I've heard many messages that were much more memorable or much more you know, uh, impacting than that. However, when he gave the altar call, people didn't just walk they ran. And I don't mean one or two, thousands. He emptied out half the stands of the stadium. They came running to receive Christ. Why is that? That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. Are you out there today? Amen. So you may think your greatest need is money. You may think your greatest need is, you know, like some kind of equipment or, or maybe, uh, you know, better contacts in the church world. No, your greatest need is the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You may not be the Apostle Paul. In fact, I'm quite sure you're not. Or you, you may or may not be the next Billy Graham. You could be. I don't know. But I'll tell you this. God wants to work through you to advance his kingdom. And so there is grace that has been reserved for you. To equip you, to equip you to do what God called you to do. It's there. It's available. But you need to walk in it. But there's something further you need to understand about God's grace. And I hope you'll listen carefully to this. And this is where many people don't see the truth clearly. Yes, grace is undeserved kindness. You can't purchase it. It's not for sale. True. It's unmerited. But it is not unqualified. Grace is unmerited. You can't buy it. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. Grace is unmerited. It is not unqualified. There are conditions which must be met to experience the fullness of God's grace. If there weren't, you'd already have it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 we alluded to it earlier, but Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
We are not saved by grace alone. If that was the case, everyone would automatically be saved. And some people who overemphasize grace, they veer into doctrinal error, into universalism, which is false doctrine. No, not everybody's going to heaven. We receive the grace of God through faith. Well, see, that is one condition that many people in this world have not yet met because they're not saved. They don't believe. Are you out there today? Now, we can emphasize the goodness of God, and we should. Don't misunderstand me. And it's very popular, especially at this moment, to talk about the goodness of God. He just loves you, and he's just so good. And that's right. I'm not making fun of that or making light of that. That's absolutely true. However, listen to me carefully. If that's all we do, then eventually people will begin to ask themselves, Well, if God is so good, why is my life in a mess? You keep telling me how good God is and how he he loves me and, and he's just so kind and gracious and all that. Well, how come my wife is sick with a terminal disease? How come my children are struggling in life? And I'm, 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 I'm struggling financially and, and I have all depression and, and all of these bondages. How come? Well, see, because they've only heard part of the truth. Yes, God is good. But God's goodness is not distributed randomly. It is not distributed randomly. Does God love someone else more than you? Then why has God been better to you than someone else? Because there's a condition. There's a condition. Think about this. There may be a huge water tank near your house, but without a direct connection between that tank and your house, the water in that tank will not benefit you at all. Faith is the pipe that the grace of God flows through. Grace is the pipe that the grace of God flows through. Grace is a giant hydroelectric power plant. Faith is electric wire. So as your faith increases, the wattage of God's power and ability can also be increased. It's not that God is stingy. It's that you need a bigger connection because it's through faith. And we know this, and we should know this, that in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, put that up on the screen. Romans 10, 17 says this. So faith comes from sitting and sitting in the church. That's not what it says, is it? I wish, right? Some people come, they don't hear nothing. Some people are too busy texting their girlfriend, SMS their girlfriend to hear the word of God. Some girl just said, that's right. <laughs> Must have got a text. Hallelujah. I'm convinced that every time we hear the word, faith is coming, if we'll receive it. Amen? Hallelujah. So many Christians want more of God's help. I bet if I asked you, almost everyone here would raise their hand. Many Christians want more of God's help, but they don't want more of his word. Sometimes they'll say, pray for me. And if I say, well, the Bible says this, they glaze over into a comatose state. And then they'll jump to their own defense. I know that already. I know that. I know the Bible says that. 
They think if I can get enough people to pray for me, I'll get my breakthrough. No, if you can believe God's word, more grace will flow into your life. So that means there is a little bit of a price to pay. So all of those years that your backside was getting raw was not in vain sitting in this church. (laughs) Hallelujah. Grace is conditional. Faith is one prerequisite. However, it is not the only condition. Let me give you another. There are several. Let me give you another. Some of you look like you got hit in the face with a ta-ta right now. Good. 1 Peter 5.5, our text says this, that the Lord gives grace to the humble. Does God give grace to everyone? No. No, in fact, the same verse says God opposes the proud. How many of you are proud? Don't raise your hand. We know who you are. (laughs) Peter did not write this letter to sinners in the world. He wrote this letter to saints in the church. So he's not talking about God opposing sinners. That's not who he's speaking to. He's talking about people in the church. That means there are some Christians that God is helping. And there could be some others that he's not helping them. It seems like a contradiction. You know, you kind of scratch your head. I mean, doesn't Romans 8.31 say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, it does. God is for you because you're his child. But he may also be against what you're doing if it's not his will or if you have the wrong attitude. Because he loves you, he may, in certain circumstances, have to oppose what you're doing. I love my children. But I don't let them just roam freely like a wild chicken. I love my children. That doesn't mean that I appreciate everything they say and do. Hallelujah. So God loves you. Look at the person next to you and say, God loves you. Comma. But he hates your pride. (laughs) You don't have to say that part. Just just internalize it. Pride will hinder God from blessing us and using us. Andrew Murray, who wrote much on this subject, said this, Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. So in one sense, today is a celebration. And in another sense, it is a funeral. Something's going to die today. (laughs) Pride. I know some Christians, when you talk about the subject of pride, they look with great astonishment and bewilderment. And they say, well, Pastor John, I don't have a problem with pride. I know that's because you're in pride. (laughs) The problem begins when you start resisting it. (laughs) Real quiet today. Praise the Lord. Psalm 138, verse 6. I didn't write this verse. It's in the Bible. I found it, but I didn't write it. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Let's make that a little clearer. Another translation says, God keeps his distance from the arrogant. God keeps his distance from the arrogant. 
So you can talk about intimacy and fellowship and all you want to, but if there's a pride issue, you go to shake hands with God and he goes, hey, how you doing? Yeah, praise you. <laughs> Walk on by. Pride robs us of fellowship with the Father. God does not commune with proud hearts. Are you listening to me? Amen. <laughs> but he looks favorably on the lowly. That means the humble. Psalm 10, I'm sorry, rather Psalm 101 verse 5 says this. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Yeah. <laughs> At least somebody's listening. Praise God. <laughs> Give that baby a job. <laughs> Let me read that again. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Now, the world around us celebrates conceit. To them, a proud look is a fashion statement. It's admired. It's considered cool. <laughs> Obviously, that doesn't look so cool, but you get the idea. <laughs> huh? Well, I wish I could give you a better example. Let's just go to your Instagram account. Some of you online, I don't even recognize you. <laughs> See, the world thinks that's great, but God says, I can't stand that. Because it's the opposite, the antithesis of who he is. Pride is the very nature of our adversary, the enemy of all that is good, the devil. Pride is the devil's nature. The scriptures indicate that Satan was originally an anointed cherub in heaven. He wasn't created evil in the beginning. He was an angel. But Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, the Lord said to him, your heart was proud because of your beauty. Wow. We could say that about some people we know. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. And the scripture indicates that the devil rebelled against God. He sinned and he was cast out. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Boom, he's gone. But in contrast, Matthew chapter 11 verse 29 says that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. Praise the Lord. And if you are led by his spirit, you'll be gentle and lowly in heart too, right? Hmm? And, and 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, refers to the meekness of Christ. Paul talks about, I adjure you, I speak to you by the meekness of Christ. Jesus left his place in glory, emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant. In other words, when he was born, he wasn't born in Marriott Hotel, born in a stable, right? And, and he, wasn't in, he wasn't born in a natural, you know, royal family. 
but his, 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 his parents were peasants. They were commoners. Hallelujah. Amen. And furthermore, he humbled himself even to the point of dying on a cross, which is a horrible death. It's not just dying. It's, it's, it's a degrading and shameful way to die. But for this reason, the Bible tells me, God exalted him, raised him from the dead, and exalted him to his own right hand. So we can see that humility lifted the Son of God from the lowest parts of hell to the highest place in the universe. And we can see that pride lowered the devil from a high place in heaven to the very depths of hell. So Matthew 23, 12 says the same thing. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. One way or another, you're going to be humble. But it's better if you do it. I said it's better if you do it yourself. So in God's economy, the way up is down. You lower yourself and God lifts you up. Consider this. Probably no other person in the Old Testament was used by God as much as Moses was. There's a lot of wonderful men and women in the Old Testament. Think about Moses. You'd have to say nobody in the Old Testament can really measure up to Moses. I mean, he delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt through, through miraculous signs. He, he gave them the law. He met with God. He spoke with God face to face. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And yet Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 says this. Numbers 12, 3 says, now the man Moses was very meek. And that's another way of saying he was very humble. He was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. So it's interesting. You'd have to say that Pharaoh in Egypt was probably the most arrogant person on the face of the earth. And he met with the most humble person on the face of the earth. And which one did God bless? The humble one. So Moses was lifted up. Even to this day, think about this, even to this day, scholars are not sure the name of Pharaoh, that particular Pharaoh. They're not even sure. Was it Ramesses II? Was it somebody else? They're not even sure. Why? Because God thought so less of Pharaoh, he didn't even bother to put Pharaoh's name in the book of Exodus. But the name of Moses is known even thousands of years later. So the man who was the most humble man was the man that God used the most. As water naturally flows to the lowest place, God's spirit fills the humble heart. God's economy, the way up is down. I mentioned Billy Graham earlier. I read his autobiography, and you can read it too, you know. And I thought it was very interesting. He wrote the preface to this rather large book by saying, probably every Christian says when I get to heaven, there are questions I want to ask God. 
And then he said, as for me, this is my question. Why me? That's what he wrote. And I thought that really says something about his genuine humility. He's saying, God, why did you choose me? Why did you, why did you use me this way? Hallelujah. See, I can't tell you how many Christian books I've read, and it can't, sometimes the author kind of gives you the impression that he's Superman. He's super-duper wonderful, you know, and you're fortunate to even, you know, get to read his book. But you need to humble yourself so that God will lift you up. Muhammad Ali, the famous prize fighter, heavyweight championship of, champion of the world many years ago, you know, back in the 70s. Muhammad Ali was flying by a Boeing jet uh, somewhere. And the stewardess, the cabin crew, told him, you have to buckle your seatbelt. And he said, Superman doesn't need to wear a seatbelt. And the stewardess said, Superman doesn't take a Boeing jet. <laughs> he went, oh. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Pride is having an overinflated opinion of yourself. Overestimating your own importance. It is thinking of yourself more highly than you should. You should think highly of yourself. Don't misunderstand me. But don't think more highly than you should. Pride is self-exaltation. God is not opposed to you being lifted up. God is not opposed to you being promoted. He's opposed to you being the promoter. That's his job. So decide in your heart, if God doesn't open the door, I'm not walking through it. If God doesn't promote me, I'm not moving there. Pride, listen carefully, pride is not confidence. David was extremely confident when he faced Goliath. Pride is misplaced confidence. It is trusting in your own ability. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, let me just say this to you. In Philippians 3, 3, the Apostle Paul said, We are the circumcision. We worship God by the Spirit of God. And we put no confidence in the flesh. I think you could define pride as confidence in your flesh. I think you could define pride as confidence in your flesh. And then in verse 4, he says this. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In other words, what he's saying is, Paul had reasons to be proud. He was, you know, his, his heritage. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he, was, he, was, he kept the law, at least as men defined it. And, and you know, and, and, and he was rising up in Judaism above his contemporaries and, and so forth and so on. He had, you know, circumcised the eighth day and all that kind of stuff like that. So, so he had reason to be proud, but he discarded all those reasons. He dismissed all those things for the sake of Christ. Amen? So some people look at a fellow who's uneducated, unemployed, never accomplished anything, and has nothing, and say, well, he's a very humble brother. He should be. <laughs> he has no reason to be proud. That doesn't tell us anything about the man's character. But when you see someone who has accomplished much, 
who has acquired much, who, who has achieved much, and yet he maintains a humble attitude, there you go. That shows me something about true Christian character. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Pride is relying on yourself instead of God. It is independent living. One reason the proud don't receive God's grace is simply they don't think they need it. But you know, as you walk with the Lord, as you grow spiritually, you don't become less dependent on God. You actually become more dependent on Him. I need His help every day. I need His strength every day. And like that old song says, I can't even walk without him holding my hand. That's true. Hallelujah. Humility is recognizing your total dependence on God. It is realizing that without God, you are nothing and you have nothing. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And humility and faith go together. How hard it is for the proud to believe. That's why some people have very limited faith. They have excess pride. It's real quiet today. Hallelujah. None of you look like my friend. God gives grace to the humble. The Lord can't teach you and show you things. He, he can't give you revelation if you've convinced yourself that you already know everything. Or that you can never be wrong about anything. Brother Hagen was holding a meeting, a series of meetings in a church in America. And he taught in the morning and in the evening he preached. He especially taught on the subject of faith and healing and things of that nature. And this pastor was actually sick. He had some kind of a physical condition. I don't remember what it was. And Brother Hagen knew that if this pastor would just come and hear the word, it would help him. But the amazing thing was, though this is the pastor of the church, he never attended a single session. He's the pastor. And, and Brother Hagen was there like three weeks or more, and yet this pastor didn't even attend a single morning session. And Brother Hagen, when he met with this pastor, would drop little hints and say, you know, if, you could, if, you're, if you're free tomorrow morning, I think it would help you. I just want to encourage you. But this pastor never attended. Finally, like the last, the last day of the meeting, he met with the pastor maybe for lunch or something, and he just blurted it out. He really said it by the Spirit. He said to the pastor, do you know you're going to die? And to his amazement, the pastor said, yeah, I know it. He said, I, I appreciate your ministry. I wanted my people, the congregation, to hear your teaching. But for me to accept it, I would have to admit that I've been wrong. And I'd rather die than admit I've been wrong about anything. Brother Hagin said when he heard that, there, there was a, a voice that spoke to him. It was really the Spirit of God from behind him that said, Two weeks from now, he will fall down dead in the pulpit. And Brother Hagin was holding a meeting, and, and, and two weeks later, another church, and telegram came, news came that while that pastor was preaching in his own church, he fell down dead. 
He said, I'd rather die than admit I'm wrong about anything. I'd rather admit I'm wrong. If, 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 you, if you can never admit you're wrong, then you can never learn anything new. You can't ever go forward. Nobody here, even the great apostle Paul said, for we see in part and we prophesy in part. Even he didn't know everything. And if he didn't know everything, I have a feeling you and I don't know everything either. But we can grow. So that means you've got to humble yourself to get revelation knowledge. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I think many times we struggle in life. We struggle in ministry because we're trying to do it in our own strength. We need to rely on the grace of God. He'll help us. Whatever he's called you to do, he'll give you the strength and the ability and the wisdom and the power to do it. Would you stand with me to your feet right now? Let's lift up our voices and praise God.